Matins, number 41, and today is December 7th, 2023, the Feast of St. Ambrose of Milan, and we are in the season of Advent. Today, we're going to talk about It's Not Christmas, Charlie Brown. Basically, what we're going to look at is the Christian year, uh, the calendar, how Catholics look at and approach and keep the Christian year, the calendar, what are some of the kind of basic rules and regulations and things that a, a regular Christian ought to know about that and how to engage with it. Before we go on, uh, just a reminder, if you would, uh, if you like these programs, if you would click down below the like button, also share the program, give us a review on Apple or Spotify, help us get noticed. We appreciate that very much. If you also want to uh, uh, communicate with me, you can, of course, comment down below on YouTube, or you can send me an email. It's frmatkin at priest.com. Also, we want to have a little prayer before we go on. As we mentioned, it's Advent, and the first collect, uh, or the collect for the first Sunday of Advent, is a wonderful collect for the whole season. In fact, in the older prayer books, it was what we call a seasonal collect, which is it was used throughout the season. So when you had, uh, for example, the, the third Sunday, uh, you would do the third Sunday collect first, but then you would also come in with the collect for Advent. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again, in his glorious majesty, to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who liveth and reigneth with thee, and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. And as he does with so many, uh, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, when he was composing the first prayer book, drew from the uh, themes that Paul brings up in the epistle reading and sort of weaves them into a, into a nice collet. Um, as it has been said before, and I don't know who originated it, is the, the prayer book is sort of like the Bible at prayer, you know, articulating the words and the thoughts of Holy Scripture as our response to God. God gives us his revelation, his word, and the thing that we do to praise him is, in a sense, kind of give that gift back to him. The best thing that we have to offer God are the things that he has given us. Well, as we mentioned, we want to talk about the Christian year, and it's good to be back with you. My apologies, it has been so long. Um, it hasn't been since we recorded the episode about praying for the dead back in November, November being the special month set aside for devotion to the holy souls and praying for the departed. I, I had a, a cold that sort of kept me down for a couple of weeks, and then I had some scheduling conflicts, and uh, of course Thanksgiving, and, and then last uh, week, a very bizarre thing, I entirely lost my voice. I was down to nothing but a whisper, so I, I couldn't imagine doing an entire podcast like this. But... Uh, Thankfully, I, I got it back. So, so Sunday afternoon on the 3rd, it, it just kind of faded away. I, I was in um, uh, Sunday school. The, the first service, the 8 a.m. Mass, totally fine. And then about halfway or toward the end of Sunday school, it's, I started to get kind of wispy and started to weaken my voice. And then... Um, uh, and in fact, I remember thinking to myself, I better slow down here because I'm not going to have any voice left by the time we get to the, the second Mass. And uh, so I, I was able to 
make it through the second Mass. I had a very uh, kind of gravelly, um, uh, shaky voice, um, but I made it through, and then that afternoon it just faded away entirely. So I was nothing but a whisper until um, that Friday and finally got back to maybe about 25%. Um, now I, I'm maybe 30 or 40%. Um, mostly all there. I can I can tell it's it's weak. Um, usually, you know, when I get a cold, I get kind of the the Barry White voice for a little while. Didn't get that this time, and and I don't know if it was related to the cold I had earlier. But anyway, you probably don't want to hear all about my uh, health uh, challenges and so on. But that was a strange feeling. Um, first time that's ever happened to me, lo- losing my voice, and I felt fine. So it was odd. I kind of forgot from time to time that this th- was going on, and then I'd try to talk, and nothing happens. <laughs> well, the Christian year is something that every Christian ought to be familiar with and know and to be able to live out and articulate to others. And it's something that has grown among various kinds of Christians that didn't in the past give much heed at all to the Christian year. So, for example, I grew up uh, as a Baptist, so I uh, follow uh, First Baptist Church in Shreveport on uh, Instagram and that sort of thing, and and kind of see you know what they're up to these days, and I notice that they basically keep, as far as at least the seasons go, um, all of the church year, uh, which is striking, because it used to be that you know, of course Christmas and Easter, you know, everybody kept that except for the most kind of radical, reformed um, Protestants, or maybe, you know, the kind of pseudo-Christian um, groups like the Jehovah's Witness or something like that. Um, the, the, the Puritans tried to ban Christmas back in the day, but that didn't really hold on. Um, nobody really wanted to give away Christmas. It had kind of gotten out of hand, gotten pretty rowdy, but uh, faithful people are able, I think, to keep Christmas and to keep it well without getting carried away. What really happens is when you get people who are not religious trying to keep Christmas and uh, just using it as, as, as an excuse for, for having a big party and getting wasted and that sort of thing. So the First Baptist Church, I, I noticed that they keep uh, Lent now. They're talking about Ash Wednesday. They're talking about Epiphany. They're talking about uh, it's Advent right now. Um, and even All Saints Day. All Saints Day, and Christ the King. Um, So it's something that I think has an inherent logic that gradually pervades. The more we're able to sort of uh, relax our defenses, our kind of uh, anti-Catholic prejudice, I guess you'd say, um, then the, the inherent logic of it begins to work on us. Because what we're talking about when we're talking about the Christian year is as we go through the cycle of the seasons, basically following Christ, um, living with him, living out his life over the course of the year. And we basically have two kinds of cycles throughout the church year. One is the the cycle of saints, the sanctorale. So that is the commemoration of different feast days and and uh, saints' days, so like All Saints' Day, and um, uh, like uh, you know Saint Martin's Day and Saint Valentine's Day, and all of those that we're familiar with, Saint Patrick's Day. But then there's the other calendar that basically overlaps, 
which is the, the proper of time. And that is basically walking through the incarnation and redemption mysteries that we find presented in the gospel. So with uh, a new year, new year actually starts with Advent and then Christmas and Epiphany. So that's kind of like the incarnation uh, side of the equation. And then we have the sort of the redemption side of the equation that takes over with Lent and Easter and Pentecost and then the church year that follows, which is basically kind of going through as disciples and learning from the parables of Jesus and uh, those sorts of things throughout that green season. So we'll kind of walk you through this and also talk about some of the things that a Christian ought to know to follow the rules and regulations and to live out the culture, the Christian culture of the Christian year. So I, I, I titled it, it's, it's Not Christmas, Charlie Brown. There's a, a website, um, and I, I had trouble pulling up, I'm starting my computer this morning, so I just uh, closed it and uh, forgot about that for the moment. But there's a website, something like It's Not Christmas. Or, or is it Christmas.com? I forget. Um, but it's very simple. You just go there and there's a big, just a blank page and a big word, no. Is it Christmas? No. And then when, it, when Christmas comes along, finally, it changes to yes. But if memory, re, re, if memory serves, it doesn't exactly do it accurately. So Christmas doesn't start the day after Halloween, doesn't start the day after Thanksgiving, doesn't even start December 1st. It starts December 25th. So when you talk about the 12 days of Christmas, and I remember as a child being totally perplexed and confused by this because I didn't know anything about the Christian year and seasons and all that kind of stuff. So the 12 days of Christmas, day one is December 25th. Day two is December 26th and so on. And so that takes you through the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas, to the Feast of the Epiphany. I remember my first uh, job as a priest coming to All Saints uh, in Fort Worth, and I was uh, the curate um, and, and starting out with the uh, youth program. And I remember that they had before me a, a, a lay uh, youth director working there, and uh, there had been, some, been, been a little friction with the, uh, the leadership and uh, so they, they, they let him go. And I don't know what his background was, but uh, one of the things I remember that they had mentioned that had caused strife, of, of all things, is uh, him, him telling the children <laughs> that Christmas starts the day after Thanksgiving and that it ends on December 26th. And uh, so that, I wouldn't say that got him fired, but, but that was one of the ones that sort of left a, a, a bad... Um, taste in the mouth of the uh, administration over there. And of course, that would have been my perspective growing up. I wouldn't know any, any better. But we'll talk about when does the Christian year begin? It begins with Advent. So that's what we're in now. Advent comes from Adventus, for the Latin for coming or arrival. Of course, looking for the, the first coming, the incarnation of Christ, the Word made flesh at Christmas time. But it also is overlapping with looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the second advent at the last day. And uh, it is the four Sundays before Christmas, so it can vary depending on what day of the week Christmas is. So, for example, this year, Christmas is Monday, which means that Advent is as short as it can possibly be. 
But last year, Christmas was on a Sunday, which meant that Advent was as long as it could possibly be. So I think uh, November 28 is the earliest day for Advent. Um, it's supposed to be the, the, the Sunday that is closest to the Feast of St. Andrew, which is November 30th. But practice, practically speaking, there are four Sundays. Now, there is a variation to this. I believe, I'm not quite sure, but I believe the Eastern Orthodox keep a longer Advent of six weeks. And in, in the West, there are a couple of uh, variations. So I believe the Ambrosian Rite of Milan has a six-week Advent. And there might be one or two others, maybe the Mozarabic Rite in Spain. I'm not, not quite sure. Um, but this kind of goes back to the Middle Ages of a a kind of parallel to Lent. So you have a big feast day coming up. You want to get really prepared for that. And it's sort of like the common thinking was the more somber you can be ahead of time, the more joyful you can be when the day arrives. And so every big feast day had a vigil, which is the day before, the eve, and that was a fast day. That was a day when the priest wore purple, very somber color, and uh, it, was a, it was a fast day getting ready for a feast. So, this, you know, the more you can get into the fast, the more you can get into the feast. Well, just like with Easter, there was a, a desire to have a bit more extensive and intensive preparation. So an entire season of preparation developed for both Christmas and Easter. <clears throat> now, in Easter, it was always very penitential, and especially because you're talking about the mysteries of our redemption, Jesus suffering for our sins on the cross, immediately, of course, brings up to mind our sin, our need for forgiveness, dealing with guilt, uh, and all that kind of thing. So that lends itself toward the penitential uh, acts of preparation for the festival. Now, when you talk about preparing for a feast, naturally, penitence comes to mind. But it was never as intensive on the Advent side as it was on the Lenten side. There's also kind of this visual parallel of the same color of purple, generally speaking. There was some variations of that. In England, you did see dark blue. You also saw black. You also saw red, I believe, in the, in the serum use in Salisbury. Um, but that there is some speculation that that red actually might be more of like a Roman purple uh, than kind of a festive Pentecost type of red. But also some of these things were you know, variable and depend upon exactly what you had in the vestment closet, uh, whether you, you know, used something that was fancy or non-fancy. That was kind of the big distinction in some places. And uh, so there was this, in the Middle Ages, uh, starting around the five 600s, there was a, a kind of threshold that you cross with the Feast of St. Martin, Martinmas, November 11th. And so that after you cross that threshold, then you start to think about the upcoming beginning of the new Christian year with uh, getting ready for Christmas. And so there was a, a kind of a fast or a Lent of St. Martin, sometimes it was referred to, and this gradually developed into the season that we know called Advent. And so the themes of Advent are death and judgment, heaven and hell. Now that might be very... Uh, illuminating and surprising to some of you, but you never heard that before. Uh, and we've really gotten away, even in liturgical Christian circles, from um, 
the kind of roots of Advent and many of the things throughout the Christian year. It's been commercialized. It's been taken over by semi-secular um, uh, devotional uh, ideas and practices. So, for example, like the uh, the Advent wreath uh, has become, of course, very popular. Um, and the different candles, now this depends upon where and whom you ask as to what they represent. There's like a different set of answers every time you go looking for it. In fact, if you go look on um, probably the Wikipedia page, it has like five or six different uh, sets of answers as, as to what the different candles represent. But generally speaking, you're talking about things like faith and hope and joy and love, those kinds of things. Well, these are not Advent themes. They are Christmas themes. And basically, they get kind of imported and moved up into the Advent season and start to kind of crowd out the more somber, penitential uh, things of Advent. Now, as I mentioned before, Advent was never uh, really the kind of penitential season that we find in Lent, but it has, uh, in, in, in all cases, at least officially, um, we've long since dropped any obligatory fasting, which is really the uh, penitential act of Lent, when you talk about Lent being a penitential season. So there are customs of fasting during Advent, but these are all voluntary um, they're a part of culture, they're a part of custom, part of your own personal devotion. They're not a part of the church's any official life. We still have the Alleluia during Advent. Uh, we drop the Gloria and we wear purple, so it's kind of a half-and-half half sort of thing. Uh, somber, but not completely penitential. Getting ready, uh, holding off the celebration. Um, and it's a... It's, it's a it's a wonderful thing to enter into, and I find that Advent, I almost wish we did have a six-week Advent, because uh, Advent is, I think, my favorite season, and it often tends to slip by so quickly. I've, <laughs> it makes me think of one of the, the oddest questions that a priest would get asked, but I get asked, and have been asked more than once, is, Father... When should I put up my Christmas lights? Or when should I put up my Christmas tree? Or, you know, th those kinds of things. I'm like, why would you ask me? Just do whatever you want to do. Um, so we, I, I try to turn it into a discussion about, you know, personal devotions and um, a spiritual rule of life and, um, you know, kind of a spiritual direction kind of thing. Um, but as far as, you know, when you want to put up your Christmas lights, that's up to you. You can keep it up all year long as far as I'm concerned. I'm not part of your homeowner's association. What I try to do uh, and have not done this year is I try to get the lights up uh, right after Thanksgiving simply because I got a little free time there. And uh, I find if I don't do that early, it catches up with me uh, as it has, and I need to get it done maybe this weekend. But the problem is, once you get in December, it starts to get dark pretty early. Uh, so that sort of cuts out your opportunities to work on this project. And also it starts to get cold outside, which is another discouragement. Um, so getting up those lights outside is the first thing that I try to take care of. Um, also, with putting up the tree, I try to kind of do that in stages. So maybe, you know, the first or second week of Advent, bring out the tree, put it up, start to slowly put up decorations around the house, hold off 
um, putting the ornaments on the tree. So like maybe the first week put in the tree, second week put the lights on. Um, and we, we have a, in our house, we have sort of a, th- a threshold because we have a birthday that happens during December. So I, I, I try, although I, I get pushback, I, I try to try to maybe hold off until crossing the threshold of that birthday and say, okay, then we can start to put up the ornaments or what have you. There's plenty of people, uh, even still today, but certainly more in the past, who would hold off a lot of these decorations until Christmas Eve, something like that. I find, of course, and especially in my line of work, I'm kind of a little bit busy on Christmas, but I, I find that you know, if, if you don't kind of take care of it ahead of time, you run out of time. Uh, so you have to keep that, you have to keep practical life as a factor when you're making decisions like that. So that's Advent, and it's a wonderful time to sort of go back to the basics, reboot, look at your spiritual life, look at your spiritual practices, what do you want to turn away from? What good habits do you want to start or reinvigorate or renew for yourself? It's a good time to make a confession, getting ready for a new year. A lot of, of course, a lot of people are going to make New Year's resolutions and those kinds of things anyway. So it's a good time to take your spiritual life into account uh, when approaching those kinds of issues. And then, of course, as we mentioned, Christmas starts on December 25th. So what about Christmas Eve? Well, technically, that is a vigil. That's a fast day. But what it has evolved into is a lot of churches, for most churches, I think, at least in in the West, I don't know about the East, Christmas Eve has ended up being more popular than Christmas Day. And I think part of that is um, both the relaxation of having services earlier in the day and also... The practical thing about, um, you know, Christmas Day is kind of a big family occasion. There's traveling to visit family and so on. Um, So if you can kind of get the church out of the way, and I don't mean to disparage church attendance by all means, but again, practical life type of things, you got to factor that in. If you can sort of knock that out first, then that frees you up as far as time and opportunity to do things with family, to travel to visit grandma and grandpa, and that's that sort of thing. Uh, so what we are looking at with Christmas is th- what is famous is the Midnight Mass. Now, allegedly, um, this goes back to uh, Pope Telesphorus, uh, about the year 130, so very early. And uh, according to the tradition, he is also the person who started the Gloria, or, or made it obligatory, or something like that. So the Gloria is this hymn early in the Mass on festive occasions, where basically it looks like, it sounds like, it's taken from the story of the angels appearing to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, peace to men on earth, and that becomes an extended hymn that is used at the beginning of Mass. There was also a uh, report given to the Emperor Trajan about the Christians in Bithynia. And uh, one of the things that's mentioned in there is that they gather early in the morning on Sunday and sing a hymn to Christ as God. And I think that is a reference, perhaps, to the Gloria or an early version of it that was used on some occasions. 
So Pope Telesphorus makes the Gloria obligatory, um, or maybe even gives it its final form, composes it, what have you. And he is also the person, supposedly, who originated the practice of Midnight Mass. So what is Midnight Mass? Basically, what we're doing is we're celebrating at the very first possible moment. And so we don't want to wait till the sun comes up. We, you know, as soon as we cross the threshold at midnight and it's the next day, we are in the church and we are praising God. And also, it kind of nicely ties into this ancient tradition of Christ being born at night. There's also kind of a parallel with uh, one of Jesus's um, parables of the ten virgins. Lo, at midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And so a lot of the church fathers kind of looked at this as sort of a, a parallel. He was born at midnight. He comes again at midnight. And incidentally, by the way, um, if that indeed is the case, we know where Christ returns. He returns to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. So if you're looking at Jerusalem time and the time zone changes, and I don't know, I can never keep track of daylight savings, if how that throws you off. But roughly speaking... That would make it about, I think, 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the uh, central time zone in the United States. So you have a development of three masses for Christmas. And this, I don't know exactly how far this goes back, but this is an ancient tradition. There are only two days of the year that have three masses. Now, what I don't mean is you just, you know, depending on the the time schedule or the capacity of the room or whatever, you do the same service three times. That's not what I'm talking about. There are three different masses, three different sets of prayers and readings for Christmas. The first one is at midnight, the next one is at dawn, and then the last one is of the day. So generally speaking, nine or ten o'clock. Um, the, the mass of the day was generally held after... Um, See, Matins, Lauds, Prime, probably after Prime. Anyway, so uh, you, you would have the Mass at midnight. I, I, I fantasize, uh, I long for, I crave, I yearn to one day actually keep this schedule. But the problem is I'm the only one that wants to keep it around here. <laughs> so uh, there's a little bit of pushback on that. But I would love to actually have Mass at midnight um, so we do. We are we are in church at midnight, um, but we're kind of finishing up um, uh, at, around midnight, um, or maybe you know the consecration is around midnight. Um, so maybe we technically uh, fall under the very threshold of keeping the rule. Um, and then the mass of the dawn and mass of the day. So we, of course we keep the mass of the day. Um, also, there's here and in a lot of places there's the the felt need to have something earlier on Christmas Eve for the family, for the kids. They don't want to be out that late and that kind of stuff. So what I do is I just take the Mass of the Dawn, which is the Mass of the Angels. The Gospel covers the angels visiting the shepherds, very much a children's kind of uh, theme. And so we bring that forward and uh, do that on Christmas Eve at, I think, 6 o'clock, which is technically not what you're supposed to do, but I think that's making the best of a practical situation. So that begins the season of Christmas. Now, when does Christmas end? That's not exactly an easy question to answer. So what you say, what about 12 days of Christmas? Well, yes, 
12 days. So that takes you to Epiphany. Twelfth night is January 5th, the preparation, the eve of Epiphany. However, when you talk about Christmas celebrations, Christmas traditions, Christmas decorations, all this kind of stuff, it doesn't quite end on Epiphany. First of all, it's a little bit odd to take away all the Christmas stuff at a feast that commemorates baby Jesus and the visit of the Magi to the, to the child Jesus. Um, so, of course, you leave all that stuff there. But then what? Well, basically, um, in, 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 at least in the, in the Novus Ordo, I'm not sure exactly about how the uh, Roman Missal before that. I think it might be the same, but anyway. Christmas technically ends uh, the day after the commemoration of the baptism. And the baptism day has shifted around a little bit. Um, so for Anglicans in the new prayer books, it is the Sunday after Epiphany. Um, I think in the old Missal it was... Um, January 13th. Um, I needed to go back and study this before I started talking about it. I apologize. In any case, that's technically when Christmas ends as far as the official liturgical rites. But it's not really over at that point either. So what you see, especially in Europe, is the Christmas tree stays up. Definitely the nativity scene stays up. Until when? Well, basically... It's until we stop having the child Jesus show up in the gospel readings. So the last time we have Jesus as a child show up in the gospel reading is the feast of the presentation of the baby Jesus in the temple, also called the feast of the purification of Mary. Two things are going on on this one occasion. And so that is February 2nd. So that would be the last wrap-up, close of the incarnation cycle and when Christmas is really finally over. And so that makes a 40-day season of Christmas. So let's talk about a few things. Before we go on to talk about the redemption cycle, I want to mention fasting on Friday, well not fasting, but abstinence on Friday, the Friday abstinence. And uh, this is a cultural thing because it is a Christian thing. Now, why is it a Christian thing? Well, in both East and West, fasting is a day, or Friday is a day of abstinence. Why? Well, what happened on a Friday? Good Friday. Jesus died on a Friday. So just like every Sunday is a little Easter, a little commemoration of the resurrection, every Friday is a little Good Friday, uh, a commemoration of Jesus's passion and death. And so it's a day of memorial, a day of mourning, a day of fasting, a day of penitence. And so the penitential act is abstinence. Um, so when we mention abstinence as, as opposed to fasting, fasting is about less food or no food, but reducing the consumption of food, whereas abstinence is about eliminating things. So I abstain from a certain thing. So what do you abstain from? Well, however it arose, it arose that red meat. Uh, and when I say red meat, I don't mean as opposed to chicken, <laughs> white meat. Uh, what I mean is beast flesh was the old expression, abstaining from beast flesh. For whatever reason, fish uh, was not considered a part of it, uh, either because it's not warm-blooded or whatever. 
And of course, different inquiries have been made. You know, what about this? What about that? You know, which category does this fall into? Which category does alligator fall into? Which category do um, uh, the, uh, you know, the kind of like rats that live in rivers, uh, you know, those, those kinds of animals, what category do they fall into? And so the Congregation for Rights or something like that in Rome has received these inquiries over the centuries and given all kinds of rulings. And some of them kind of like, I don't know, it's a head-scratcher, you know. So alligator is considered a fish. I don't know. At least it's not beast flesh. Although if you, th if you think of the word beast, alligator would certainly seem to fit the bill. Um, at least what I think of as a beast in my mind, some kind of Godzilla type of thing uh, trying to squash me. But in any case, um, fish was never considered a part of that category. So we abstain from beast flesh on Friday, probably because for most of human history, it was something of both on the one hand a necessity of protein and also a kind of luxury. Um, it was always um, a fancy thing to be able to eat meat. It was something that certainly the rich, the wealthy, had plenty of opportunity for, and the poor had less opportunity for. So, you know, if you take Fridays as a family tradition to go to Red Lobster, yeah, technically you might be following the rules, but uh, you're not really keeping the spirit of the thing. It should be penitential, but also it's something that becomes a mark of identity. You know, this is who we are. This is what we do. And it was something that kind of took a while for me to gradually assimilate and grow into because it's a challenge, challenging thing. For me, Fridays was always kind of like, where well, the weekend is starting, you know, this time to party. Uh, so you, you want kind of festive foods like pizza and tacos or, you know, something like that. But gradually, if you start to let Christian values and priorities assimilate and take over your life, then Friday takes on a special meaning. Friday is a special thing. And it becomes a special thing for our family. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is why we're different from everybody else. Because for us, Friday is a day of the cross. And it's something that doesn't have to be dour and a downer. It can be a positive memorial. And so when we have fish on Friday, or when we do cheese quesadillas or something like that, you know, or... Um, um, fettuccine Alfredo or something. It, it's a reminder that this is a different day. Uh, why is tonight different from all other nights? Well, it's because the day Christ died on this day. That's why it's different. Same kind of thing with Sunday, but just celebrate a little different. Every Sunday is supposed to be a feast day. Sunday, you're not supposed to uh, be dour and do without. You're supposed to be festive. Now, you're supposed to refrain from servile work, but that's a part of stopping and making the day different and allowing yourself to celebrate and relish in God's goodness and give him special thanks in his temple. So Fridays are a day of abstinence. By the way, if you want to look up the rules, where do you find them? Well, in the let's start with the 1928 prayer book. So in the 28 prayer book, it is page, oh, good grief, they do Roman numerals. So it's page L. Uh, which I, no, no, 
page page I, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is weird because they do capital I, lowercase I. Yeah, so I guess it's Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two. Well, no, because the day before it is. Uh, anyway, you can figure it out for yourself. <laughs> that's that's what it looks like if you're looking on uh, YouTube. So it says tables and rules for movable and immovable feasts, together with the days of fasting and abstinence throughout the whole year. So what it mentions on page um, LI or II, uh, a table of fasts. Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are the two fast days of the year. Then it says other days of fasting, on which the church requires such a measure of abstinence as is more especially suited to extraordinary acts and exercise of devotion. One, the 40 days of Lent. Two, the ember days, the four seasons, being Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, after First Sunday in Lent, uh, Feast of Pentecost, September 14th and December 13th. And number three, all the Fridays of the year. So that's where we get that reference to abstinence on Friday, the Friday abstinence. Now, it doesn't spell out how you do that. So there, there are many things, uh, this being one great example uh, in the Anglican tradition, where we rely upon custom and tradition rather than law. So, for example, the Roman mindset is to nail everything down in law, uh, whereas our approach is more, unless it is really obligatory to put it into law, it remains as a part of the law of custom or tradition. And then we only write down uh, the, the most basic uh, rules that we absolutely need to for law. So that's where we get. Now, it says all Fridays of the year except... So there are some Fridays that are overwritten by a special feast. So all the Fridays of the year except Christmas Day and the Epiphany and any Friday which may intervene between these feasts. So it's interesting there. Now, it doesn't have a reference to Easter. That is really fascinating. It doesn't have a reference to Easter week, the Easter octave. Um, but as far as tradition goes, that was always considered um, overriding uh, the uh, fast. Of, well, maybe it mentions it in the, the table of feasts. Anyway, we, we will look at that more later. Now, one of the interesting things to note is the tran transition from the old uh, rites to the new rites in the 1960s and 70s with the com composition of the 1979 prayer book and then the, uh, the 2019 continues to follow the same pattern for the most part. You, you basically have a, a, a redoing of the Christian calendar in terms of its structure. So before that, you have this whole arrangement of feast days being like doubles, semi-doubles, uh, all this kind of stuff. Don't worry about that. You have a simplification of it to um, principal feasts, major feasts, and optional feasts. So kind of a three-tiered system, although there are some subtleties in that. And, of course, fast days. So where do you find the rules and regulations on that in those books? So on page 15 in the 1979 prayer book is when you find the calendar for the church year with all the rules and regulations. On page, and in the 2019, they put it toward the end of the book. On page 687 is where you find 
the rules and regulations about the Christian year. It says the calendar of the Christian year. So Sundays are days of obligation, that is, when you are obligated to attend church. Uh, there are other principal feasts that rise to that same level, that same rank. And so some of them are Sundays, some of them are not. So you are obliged, under pain of sin, to go to church every Sunday, but also on All Saints Day, although that can be transferred to the following Sunday, Christmas Day, and you can observe that on Christmas Eve, and the Epiphany, and the Ascension. So Epiphany, Ascension are the big ones to remember and keep in mind, because they are not ones that you can fulfill on a Sunday. They're not ones that are bank holidays. You have to uh, go out of your way uh, to keep those as much as you possibly can. Now, the, the thing I was going to mention in the shifting of the calendar with the Friday abstinence is it's not just the Christmas and Easter octave that you get off, but it's the Christmas and Easter season, which is probably a little bit too much of a relaxation of the law in my estimation, but and that's just me. Well, let's talk briefly about the rest of the, the church here. You have, a, you have a redemption cycle. Of course, where does that begin? That begins with Lent. Now, you have Lent as a season of preparation for Easter, but then you also have this pre-Lent uh, preparation to get ready for Lent. So it, it will overlap the redemption cycle by some, depending on when it falls. But uh, after Epiphany, you have uh, some green Sundays. And then when you get to Septuagesima, which means the 70, and that's roughly 70 days away from Easter, then you have the beginning of pre-Lent. So you have three Sundays of pre-Lent. Sometimes it's called Shrove Tide. I, I tend to use that expression. That's when you are shriven for your sins. And so the, the ancient practice was that in Shrove Tide, you, you make your confession, and then in Lent, you do your penance. In the 1970s, 1960s, we got rid of Shrove Tide, and so all of the Shrove Tide stuff got sort of pushed into Lent. So Lent was looked upon as a time to make your confession and do your penance. But the old way was you make your confession during Shrove Tide, you do your penance throughout Lent, getting ready for Easter. So three Sundays of pre-Lent, and it's authorized in the, in the 2019 book. Um, you can do uh, Shrove Tide if you want to. It doesn't have any um, difference in readings. Basically, you can just wear purple and call it Shrove Tide. I believe the Ordinariate takes the same approach. And I'm not sure exactly about um, some of the details of the Ordinariate uh, rules and regulations for the Christian year. I believe everything basically, for the most part, follows the Novus Ordo rules and regulations. And then if memory serves um, for the Western Rite Orthodox, pretty much everything follows the 1928 rules and regulations for the Western Rite um, in that occasion. Oh, so, and then we have Ash Wednesdays, the official beginning of Lent. And uh, we, t we talked about the beginning of pre-Lent is Septuagesima. Then we have Sexagesima, which is 60 days. It's not exactly 60 days. It's kind of rough. And then Quinquagesima, 50 days, not really exactly 50 days, but close. And then with the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, we have Quadragesima, which is 
what Lent is called in Latin. And so in the Roman church, technically, it's, Lent is, comes from German, uh, which is basically the word for lengthen, where the springtime, the days are getting longer. And so quadragesima, uh, you know, 40 days, is the name of Lent. So the entire Lent is called quadragesima. And then you have Holy Week, which is the preparation uh, for Easter with that final week of Jesus where we have the events that we read about in the Gospels or the, the betrayal on, on, well, we'll back up, the entry into Jerusalem and triumph on Palm Sunday and then the betrayal of Jesus uh, with uh, pieces of silver on, on Spy Wednesday and then on Monday Thursday or Holy Thursday we have the Feast of the Last Supper, the occasion where Jesus uh, has the Seder meal with his disciples and then goes into Gethsemane to pray and is arrested and taken into custody. Good Friday, of course, the day of the crucifixion, the day of venerating the cross. Holy Saturday is the Sabbath where Jesus rests in the grave on the Sabbath day. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection. And uh, it begins a great period of feasting with Easter a whole season. Again, Easter is not just a day, but a season. In the old calendars, there was an octave for some of these big special days like Easter and Pentecost and so on. Uh, I think they pretty much did away with all the octaves now, but there is at least on the calendar a special uh, Easter week um, that's left. And then you have uh, 40 days till you get to Ascension, the Feast of the Ascension. And then Eastertide continues until uh, Pentecost, which is Pentecost, the 50 days, is an ancient Jewish uh, feast, uh, but it was taken over as a Christian feast. And uh, so instead of 50 days after Monday, Thursday, it's 50 days after Easter Sunday. And you have the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the gift of tongues for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, the beginning of the church, you have 3,000 converts on day one who are baptized and join the church. And then you have basically the beginning of the Christian year, which is a time of discipleship and mentoring and training and practicing your faith. There was a, a Sunday that arose sort of late. In fact, it's in English in origin. Thomas Becket was ordained a bishop on Trinity Sunday, and partly out of his martyrdom, uh, that gained attention and spread all across Europe until it became kind of standard and obligatory as Trinity Sunday and the first Sunday after Pentecost. And so in England, and I, th I believe in some places in Northern Europe, they numbered the Sundays after Pentecost, the, I'm sorry, after Trinity, uh, whereas in Southern Europe, they were numbered after Pentecost. And then you have um, special uh, occasions Feast days that kind of dot the summer, like Corpus Christi and like uh, Precious Blood and um, All Saints Day and so on. But that basically that green season of the church year is your time for growth and maturity and practicing your faith. So remember to fast, remember to feast, remember which day it is and what you're supposed to do on that particular day. Remember the Friday abstinence. Remember getting into the spirit of the seasons. Learn about the seasons. When you come to a new season, look it up. Look it up on Wikipedia. Look it up on uh, newadvent.org is a wonderful resource because there they have the, the online old um, Catholic encyclopedia from 1917 
which can be a bit dense, uh, but is an excellent, excellent resource. If you're looking for something a little bit more light and uh, USA Today readable, then you want to go to uh, Wikipedia or something like that. Or Fish Eaters is a wonderful website to learn about um, customs at home. Anglican Compass has done a good job on kind of a rookie guide to this and a rookie guide to that and lessons for the home about keeping the seasons and so forth. Well, it's good to be with you today. We'll be, I hope my voice will hold up strong and we'll be back next week uh, with another uh, podcast. Until then, God bless and uh, keep the faith.